Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. When you listen to music through a streaming music service, how aware are you of what you're actually listening to? Okay, sure, you can look at the screen, but what does that tell you? Okay, the name of the artist, the name of the song, maybe the name of the album, how much time has elapsed, how much time is left in the song. But let's say you're intrigued by what you're hearing and you want to know more. That means you got to search the internet. Wikipedia is surprisingly accurate when it comes to learning more about a song or an album, at least usually, who produced it, the engineer, the name of the studio, the supporting players, and so forth. I mean, it does the job, but, you know, it does feel kind of lacking, a bit antiseptic. And then if you want lyrics, you have to search other sites. And again, these sites do a very decent job, but, uh, okay, I'll just say it. I, I miss liner notes. I miss being able to sort through all the printing in a CD booklet or on a vinyl record. There's something mysteriously cool about learning something about the artist or the music by finding something buried in the liner notes. Writing and compiling this text used to be a big deal. People were paid good money and even won awards for writing liner notes. The industry has specialists for this sort of thing. But as we get deeper and deeper into the digital era, liner notes are disappearing along with the concepts of B-sides and bonus tracks and album artwork. It's all part of the evolution of music culture. This is a final part in a series marking these charges. This is Digital Debris, number three, Liner Notes. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. That's Todd Farrell Jr. and the Dirty Birds with a 2013 song about liner notes. All that textual information found on records and within CD booklets that seems to be disappearing in the age of streaming. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross. And let's be very clear, streaming is here, it is the future, it is super convenient and gives us instant access to more music than we ever thought possible. It is awesome. But in the transition from physical media to digital means of distribution, some things are being lost, and I call this digital debris. And on this final episode on the matter, we're going to talk about liner notes, where they came from, and what happened to them. First of all, this text and these writings can also go by the names album notes or sleeve notes. When we're talking about vinyl, liner notes can come on the jacket itself, the protective thing around the record, that, you know, the packaging. Or it could be on an inner sleeve that encases the actual album. If we're speaking of CDs, there's the booklet inside the jewel case. Cassettes were a different matter. The artwork came on something called a J-card because it was folded into a hard J-shape in the cassette case. Now, sometimes the J-card could be folded out into a mini booklet with liner notes, but other times it was blank. Some pre-recorded cassettes back in the day had no liner notes at all. But whose idea was it to write stuff about music on this packaging? 
This goes back to the beginning of the 20th century and the very, very start of the recorded music industry, specifically when we started using flat rotating discs to store our music. When discs were sold individually, they came in plain packaging with no adornment whatsoever. We discussed this on part two of this series on artwork. Remember, too, that these discs could hold maybe three and a half minutes worth of music per side. That meant that if you had a long performance like, say, a symphony, it had to be stretched out over multiple discs, multiple sides. These were then sold together in a package that looked like a photo album, except that this was called a record album. And yes, that is the origin of the modern term. Those old-school record albums of the first half of the 20th century were sometimes made up to look fancy, and that included adding some text to explain what was included. This followed in the tradition of printed music programs that were handed out at symphonies, operas, and so on. They were the notes on what the audience was about to see and hear. Back in those early days, record album text tended to be very basic information about the recordings. Sometimes, though, someone would write an essay about the recordings, or the performance, or the composer, or whatever. Most often, though, the inner sleeves featured ads for other albums offered by the label. Whatever was printed there became known as sleeve notes. The term liner notes would come into play later. There are no rules about what can be in liner notes. It can be nuts and bolts details about the recordings, starting with the song titles and their lengths. There's almost always songwriting credits, song publishing information, and the name of the record label. Or you could have next to nothing at all as a way to build mystery and myth. Led Zeppelin's fourth album had almost zero in the way of liner notes. The cover featured no title. The band's name is nowhere to be found. And then opening up the gatefold sleeve, there's just a painting of some lizard figure known as the Hermit. It's only when you get to the inner paper sleeve that you get some rudimentary information about the record, along with those four strange runic symbols meant to represent each member of the band. And song lyrics? Well, just Stairway to Heaven. That's it. Even more stark is Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures album. Again, we get some very basic album notes in which we learn that side A is labeled as outside and side B is inside. What are we supposed to make of the music and the people who made it? Well, the idea was to listen, to try to make up the lyrics the best we could, and then to let our imaginations take over. Joy Division from Unknown Pleasures from 1979 and She's Lost Control. Again, minimal liner notes by design. Other artists insisted on giving us as much information as possible with their liner notes. We might learn who played the instruments on what songs, who produced and engineered the record, what studios were used, song lyrics, might be a list of thank yous from the band, and so on. In today's world, we would call this metadata. It's encoded right into the digital file. In iTunes, you can right-click and choose the Get Info option, and a dialog box will pop up with several tabs of metadata. If you buy a song directly from the iTunes Music Store, most of those fields will be filled out. Too often, though, they're left blank. Okay, hold on, back up. When Columbia Records introduced the 12-inch long-playing vinyl album in June 1948, the game began to change. That double-sided 12-by-12-inch packaging had to be filled with something. And since these LPs were first reserved for serious highbrow music, you know, classical music, Broadway show tunes, movie soundtracks, and jazz, more information was called for, because that's what the audience wanted. It was common for essays to be commissioned on the music contained therein. Editorial content, in other words. 
Sometimes they're written by journalists. Other times they came from musicologists, sometimes from the artists themselves. Or sometimes it could be written by a record label executive. The idea was to educate and inform the listener about what they were hearing. And because LPs moved us away from individual sleeves bound together in a book-like thing to a single liner, a single package in which the record was held, the term liner notes became more popular. This expanded to folk recordings in the 1950s. By the mid-60s, LPs were starting to become the format of choice for all types of music, including rock. And this is where liner notes began to enter a golden age, especially after Bob Dylan's Highway 61 Revisited was released in 1965, which featured a rambling piece written by Dylan on White Heap, a man at the Arabian Crossing who is, um, well, it's not very clear. Anyway, a, a clown shows up and then there's the Wipeout Gang and then, well, it's just strange. But that was the point. It gave listeners something to read and wonder about in addition to the music and in addition to the artwork. When Boston released their debut album in 1976, it came with a very long essay on the back cover that was about the band and the making of the record and why we should listen. The way the essay was constructed, it was essentially a press release on the album designed to catch the eye for anybody in a record store who might want to know more about this band before deciding to buy it. This is the kind of thing that made record store browsing very interesting. As rock became a vehicle for social change through the 1960s, song lyrics became more and more important to print in the liner notes. Maybe there would also be a message to fans, another editorial of sorts. That, combined with the artwork, made music a very active experience. Okay, sure, you can just sit back and listen, but the artwork and the liner notes added a new dimension to everything. There was an executive named Ralph Gleason from Fantasy Records who was big into liner notes. He'd write his opinion of the album and sometimes go off on tangents about why this music was important from a social or political point of view. By the time we got to the 1970s, which was probably the best time for liner notes, at least as far as vinyl LPs went, studying the text of an album revealed so much about the artist and the music in those pre-internet, pre-video channel days. It was how people learned the names of producers and of recording studios, the names of session players, of musical instrument manufacturers and endorsements, and so much more. I've pulled my vinyl copy of David Bowie's 1971 album, The Man Who Sold the World Down from the Shelf. When this record came out, Bowie was still an emerging artist, but there was clearly something different about this guy, and the liner notes tried to get that across. I don't know who wrote this, but uh, let me just quote Chronologically, this is the second of David Bowie's rock and roll albums, and at the same time, it is a clear landmark indication that what was once only rock and roll is now a boundless form of musical expression, yet still rock and roll. Bowie was a pioneer in this knowledge. The music is unmistakably vintage Bowie, from the throbbing, sweeping, the width of a circle, that's the first song on the album, to the eclectic and Bowie-eye synthesis, rock and rolling, black country rock, another song from the record. The album mirrors intense and vulnerable intelligence and the intense and vulnerable sensuality of its maker. Neither metaphor nor analog, Bowie's music insists on its own reality. Phantasmagoria is its reality. The preternatural is its unsettling truth. Never attitudinal, somehow both stark and lavish, intelligent and sensual. This album, recorded at the onset of the decade, is a clear prognosis for the decade. Yeah, that's, that's a quote. Going a little deeper, we learn that the album was recorded and mixed at Trident Studios in London, that Bowie wrote all the songs, 
that the record features a guy named Ralph Mace playing something called a Moog synthesizer, very futuristic and mysterious back then, and that RCA was very proud to mention that this album was a Dynaflex recording, a new development in record manufacturing that provides a smoother, quieter surface and improves sound quality to reproduce a musical sound. This lightweight record also virtually eliminates warpage and turntable slippage. You see what I mean? Back in the day, liner notes were like textbooks for people who wanted to know more about what they were listening to. Liner notes were such a big deal that a Grammy Award was established for them in 1964 and continues even today. Pretty much every award has been given out to someone who has written liner notes for classical recordings, or a collection, or an anthology, or a greatest hits package, although several individual Johnny Cash albums were recognized. There's not a lot of rock on the Grammy list outside of a bit of Bob Dylan, but in 2013, Big Star, the cult favorite power pop act from the 1970s, was given a Best Liner Notes Grammy for a box set called Keep an Eye on the Sky. The writer was Robert Gordon, an American rockabilly singer. He offered quite a bit of insight into the set's 52 unreleased tracks, all from Big Star's first three albums in the early and middle 70s. Here's a sample of Big Star. I mean, why not? It's called 13. Would you be an Alex Chilton and Big Star, major influence on power pop bands everywhere. And although they never sold a ton of records, they did get a Grammy Award for Best Liner Notes in 2013. In a moment, we'll make the transition to the CD era, where liner notes were taken to, well, a different level. This is the third and final part of a series called Digital Debris, a look at some of the things we've lost or are losing as the result of our transition to a world where music is more and more in the digital, the virtual realm. And this time we're talking about the history of liner notes. As we discussed on the last show, the switch from vinyl to CDs was awful for album artwork because the palette shrunk. Instead of two sides of a 12 by 12 inch square, we had something that was just 5 by 5 inches, a mere 25 square inches. And at first, it looked like liner notes were going to suffer from the transition from vinyl to digital. And when CDs first appeared in the marketplace in 1983, the booklets that came inside were often just wretched things. No effort was put into them at all. Sometimes you'd open things up to unfold a 10 by 5 bit of glossy paper with one half devoted to the front cover and something half-assed on the other side. Turn it over to see the other side and there was a good chance it would be blank. Some of the first Beatles albums released on CD came this way. And geez, if there was ever a band that deserved proper liner notes, it was, it was the Beatles, right? Eventually, though, those slips of paper, and really that's all that they were, were expanded into booklets, sometimes folded up, sometimes held together with a staple or two. These booklets could be filled, packed with information, even more than what we might have found on some albums. Each song might be annotated with all kinds of extra detail, and printing lyrics became more and more common. The one thing that disappeared were the long essays and editorials and social commentaries. They pretty much disappeared by the mid-80s, except for those expansive and expensive collections, like box sets. Some artists weren't so keen on putting a lot of effort into liner notes. For example, Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails wasn't crazy about printing his lyrics, thinking that he'd rather have people listen carefully to the music 
then follow along. But he eventually came around. As CDs became the format for music, the booklets that came with them could be pretty good when it came to learning more about the artist and the music. Bell and Sebastian is an indie pop band from Scotland. Lead band Stuart Murdoch liked to write quirky short stories. One album featured a story about how he overdressed for a walk, so he stopped into the post office and mailed his jacket home back to his house so he wouldn't have to carry it around with him on that warm day. Others came with specific instructions on how to listen to the album. Play loud or play at maximum volume or something like that. But here's what Lou Reed wrote for his 1989 album, New York. This album was recorded and mixed at Media Sound, Studio B, New York City, in essentially the order you have it here. It's meant to be listened to in one 58-minute sitting as though it were a book or a movie. I'm on the left, and the other guitarist, Mike Rathke, is on the right. I did all the solos except for the two clean ones on Endless Cycle and Sick of You. He then goes on to credit everybody else on the record, finishing up this way. I want to thank everyone who helped me with the guitars, the pickups, the speakers, the cabinets, and the amplifiers, the power it all. You can't beat two guitars, bass, and drum. He's going to end up on the dirty boulevard. He's going out to the dirty boulevard. He's going down to the dirty boulevard. Lou Reed from 1989. I've been hired to write liner notes for a number of albums. There were a series of retro 80s collections put out by EMI in the 90s. Six of them, I think. I've done a couple of box sets, including the 25th anniversary edition of the Tragically Hips Fully Completely album. We'll get back to that in a moment. And there was one job that surprised me because I didn't know I was writing the liner notes. In the spring of 2008, I flew down to L.A. to interview Weezer about their new Red album. It went great. Everybody seemed happy. When the CD came out on June 3rd, 2008, it appeared with a very nice booklet loaded with lyrics and text and pictures and illustrations from the band. And it also featured transcripts of a couple of interviews. And uh, some of those questions and answers looked awfully familiar. If you really dig into the booklet and its tiny, tiny font, and you flip to the back inside page, you'll see this note. Liner notes questions. Keijo Himatanian, who I met in L.A., and uh, Alan Cross. Oh, wait, wait. That's me. Was I told that my interview was going to be used as part of the liner notes for the Red Album? No. Was I asked permission? No. Was I paid? No. Doesn't matter, though. I got to be part of one of Weezer's best albums, and it's going to be there forever. So that is my weird Weezer liner notes story. When we return, what happens when you know you're writing liner notes and what the future of liner notes looks like in the digital era? Like I said earlier, I have some experience writing liner notes for albums. There's that series of retro 80s albums for EMI that I mentioned. There's the series of ongoing history CDs that came up back in the day. They were anthologies too. And I just told you about the weird thing that happened with Weezer. But the biggest liner note project I ever did was for the 25th anniversary edition of the Tragical Hips Fully Completely album. That's the Hips best-selling record. Well over a million copies sold in Canada alone. So when the anniversary came up, they wanted me to do something special. So for this project, I was allowed to play in the Tragically Hip archives. I went to their management office, 
where I was faced with a mountain of bankers' boxes, each filled to the brim with photos and tapes and CDRs, newspaper clippings, magazine articles, press releases. This is a band that saved everything. And it was my job to sort through this stack of stuff, find gems of information, and then use that to write an essay on the album, and as well as create some song-by-song annotations. This took weeks. First of all, there was all the rummaging through those bankers' boxes. They were too valuable to take home, so I set up a little space inside the HIPS management office. Then I did interviews with members of the band. Those had to be transcribed. Then came the writing, the editing, the submission for approvals, then more writing and editing and approvals. Everything had to be just right, you know? In the end, fans got the album along with a bonus disc and a DVD of a live show at the Horseshoe Tavern in Toronto recorded on September 13, 1992. Everything was encased in a wonderful hardcover package with pages and pages of pictures and illustrations and scans. And of course, my liner notes. I'm pretty proud of this, actually. It's a beautiful thing to behold. I wonder if it was ever submitted for a Recording Package of the Year Juno Award. I don't know, but I do know that there's no Juno on my shelf. Now that we're moving deep into music's all-digital era, what will become of the whole art of writing liner notes? Well, that has to go digital, too. You may have heard of digital booklets. These are just like physical liner notes, except that they're digital, and they're distributed with digital tracks, usually as a PDF document. You have to click around to find it, but if it's there, it's embedded with the rest of the metadata that comes with the music files. Apple's iTunes Store really got into this with something called the iTunes LP. This was codenamed Cocktail and first appeared in the fall of 2009. The idea was to create interactive album artwork. You might have stumbled across something with the file extension ITLP, iTunes LP. But uh, that's all done. Apple stopped taking and publishing this material in March 2018, and they've been removing them ever since. The record labels were working on something called CMX that would contain extras like liner notes along with artwork, video, lyrics, and more, all in one single download. That was back in 2009. No idea what happened to the CMX initiative. I'm I'm guessing it doesn't exist. Nice idea, though. Oh, and here's a bit of trivia. The first ever iTunes LP, the first digital album filled with these extras, was U2's How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. So where are we with liner notes when more and more people are streaming music? In 2013, Rhapsody, which has since been renamed Napster and sold a couple of times, started including digital liner notes in its song data. This got a big endorsement from the people who staged the Grammy Awards. But for this to work, you needed a database from which to draw this information. They started on it, and it was called the Global Repertoire Database. Not only was this supposed to be a place where anyone could find liner notes and artwork, but it would also serve as a single-point registration site for all the songs in the known universe. Think of it as an international movie database, but for music. This was supposed to make it easy to find out everything about a given song, including who needed to be credited and therefore paid for use of these songs. 
I mean, at the end of every movie, there's a credit roll, right? Same with TV shows. Why is there nothing equivalent in music? That's what the GRD, the Global Repertoire Database, was supposed to fix. Lovely, lovely idea. Except that it never worked out. There is no statutory requirement anywhere in the world for anyone to register copyrighted works with any third party. And compiling this material turned out to be more expensive and complex than anyone thought. The whole thing collapsed in 2015. In February 2020, Spotify launched something called Songwriter Pages, which they call a new way for fans, collaborators, and industry partners to dive deeper into the creators behind their favorite songs. It involves clicking around on songwriters' names in the credits to find out what else they've written. Not much, but something, right? Then we have hardware manufacturers that are trying to make it easier to access this stuff. There's a high-res audio player called Sleeve Notes that's designed to display the artwork for albums and songs in a high-res format, which is, again, nice, but these things are really expensive. And, and do you really want to spend hundreds of dollars on another portable music player when you already have a perfectly good phone? Today, if people want to know more about an album, they go to Wikipedia. Like I said earlier, it generally does a good idea, but the information on Wikipedia is crowdsourced and isn't always accurate. There's also allmusic.com, which is a really good resource for some of this stuff. And there's discogs.com, which does a very good job of providing the basics. And finally, there's an Australian site called JAXTA, J-A-X-S-T-A. They're on a mission to bring back official liner notes by creating a big database of, uh, well, everything that requires liner notes. Their idea is to be able to click around on all the information listed to help enhance music discovery. JAXTA, and as far as I know, Discogs, are getting clean, accurate data from the record labels themselves, which is really important. I guess we'll see, right? If there's one place liner notes will live for a long time to come, it's with box sets. Labels want to keep their catalogs of older songs alive and producing profits, producing revenue. And one very lucrative way of doing that is by issuing elaborate collections, many of which feature production information, lyrics, essays, analysis, hardcover books, softcover books, picture books, and a whole lot more. Then there's the current resurrection of vinyl. New vinyl is a throwback to the days of old vinyl where people want to hold the jacket in their hands while the record spins on the turntable. We have third parties like Discogs and Jaxta trying to fill the gap. And then there are the individual entries for albums and songs and artists on Wikipedia or allmusic.com. Again, though, it's all going to come down to this. In the fragmented digital world, how are we going to keep track of the songs and all the people who worked on them? People need the official credit so they can be recognized for their work and get paid. Liner notes are not quite dead. In fact, they are, in one sense, a business imperative. We just don't know what form they'll take yet. If you missed any of this series on digital debris, they're available as podcasts through the usual sources, all the platforms, actually. They're all free, so just download and go. In fact, there are hundreds of ongoing history podcasts available. Binging is heartily encouraged. We can meet up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Plus, there's my website that's updated every day with music news and information. Just go to a ajournalofmusicalthings.com and also get the free daily newsletter while you're there. Email, send that to alan at alancross.ca, and I'll get right back to you. Technical production is by Rob Johnston. What else can I put in these liner notes? Uh, recorded at my home studio on Pro Tools, uh, mixed on Rob's laptop at his place. Uh, all music is acquired from my personal library or iTunes. 
guess that's about it. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Cotex. And I have two of the hosts of Art Cotex with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlow and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about it's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these, these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects, do you sit down and hear their stories, their come ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet? Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, Two Chains. Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it, like like late '90s to now. Is still relevant, you know. Like we broke our our production company, fella, with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Pop Star. So it's 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 been a crazy journey, and um, there were two kids from Brampton, Ontario, that uh, went out to you know make art that broke out to the world, and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling, but through an audio uh, medium. Okay. How are you going to make that transition? You've been telling stories through video. Now it's going to be only audio. So uh, you're going to have to change your style a little bit, I guess. I mean, we're talking to the creators, so it's a different kind of thing. You know what I mean? Um, the, the story is the story of the maker. So it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it. It's talking like the last, the first podcast, the debut of our of the show was with Dave Myers. Um, another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done. And, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about black lives matter, uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music, uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than, what we're 
used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they what gravity what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking. Um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like when you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and and that that piece of art. As far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration, so it's pretty much. We're, we're, we're giving them that kind of, you know, close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line. Right. I've, I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind <laughs> of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these you know things? Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah, it's it's and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up I came up in the 80s era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos. Right. The MTV much music era watching videos by like Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and and Michael Jackson and uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys to be in this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at architects pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Art Catex with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.